one of the things that, of course, happened last week can't, could not have been avoided, and sometimes things like that happen. And I, uh, I noticed, or I was informed that the attendance first hour was fairly good, and then everybody just kind of disappeared, like summer reruns. Oh, we've already heard it. But I particularly picked those tapes because of their significance as background for what we're doing in First John. And since it's been a couple of years, I figured everybody needed to hear it and be reminded of those things. Again, when I'm not here, I try to pick things that I think are crucial and important for the congregation to hear and to be aware of that normally we don't have the time or the opportunity to get into. Uh, that is why I have chosen uh, a couple of things that are going to be going on during the next three weeks while I am in uh, teaching in the Ukraine. And we will be leaving on Friday, so Wednesday night this week will be our normal study in Daniel. And then another Daniel will be here next Sunday morning, followed the next Sunday by Charlie Clough. So I know that you will want to be here for give support to those guest speakers. Wednesday night class will continue. There's going to be special uh, uh, video presentation during that time that uh, on Islam and Israel, what's going on in the Middle East, that I've gone through these videos and picked the ones I think are the most uh, informative, and it's fascinating information. I don't think anybody's going to want to miss that. I think that's about it as far as announcements go. Anything else I need to have? Oh, yeah. We need to make sure I talk with Mike this morning, so if you're interested, next weekend when Dan, Dan comes in about 5 o'clock on Saturday, lands at Providence Airport, somebody needs to pick him up. Uh, and the next week, Charlie comes in probably about the same time. Somebody needs to pick him up. So those arrangements need to be uh, taken care of. I guess that ought to do it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study... This morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, ready to study His Word. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the privilege to gather together in this meeting house for the freedom we have in this nation. And, Father, we continue to pray that our troops might have victory in this war against terrorism, that you might give wisdom to our intelligence operations, that they might be able to find out the whereabouts of our enemies and that they might seek them out and destroy them. 
Father, we pray for us now as we study your word that we might be responsive to the challenge of the doctrinal truths that we discover here, that we would be uh, encouraged and that we would be motivated to push on towards spiritual maturity. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ruth chapter 4 this morning. Ruth chapter 4. And this morning we will conclude our study of uh, Ruth as well as concluding the study that we began about a year and five or six months ago when we began our study of the book of Judges. So all of this covers the same period of time. Judges is a portrait of the nation in apostasy and divine discipline. Judges, as you recall, is a rather negative book. It's a negative look at Israel, a negative look at what happens in the life of the nation. Excuse me a minute. As I was saying, Judges is a rather negative book. And it's easy to become a little discouraged going through Judges and taking a look at how a nation deteriorates into apostasy. On the other hand, Ruth, which is a separate book but covers the same period of time as the Judges, is a picture of how even in the midst of apostasy, even when we're in rebellion against God, even in the midst of a time when God is disciplining us, God's grace never fails us. And God is still active and God's still involved in the nation Israel just as he is in our lives. So it reminds us of the principle that no matter how bad things get, no matter how disobedient we are, no matter how carnal we are, no matter how much misery is in our lives because of our own bad decisions, God never deserts us and God's grace is always there. If we're still alive, God still has a plan for our lives. Now the major theme of the book of Ruth is that God transforms suffering into blessing. It is only on the basis of doctrine and a relationship with God that the suffering in the life of the believer, whether it is suffering as discipline or suffering for training, suffering for blessing, only God can transform that suffering into blessing. And we see from the opening verses of Ruth, in Ruth chapter 1, 1 through 4, that Naomi, who is the real subject of this book, not Ruth, Naomi is faced with a difficult trial, difficult test. She faces the loss of not only her husband, but in those ten years that they're out of the land in Moab, her two sons die. So she is, she takes that suffering, and rather than focusing on God's provision, she does what most of us do at times. She internalizes it. She becomes uh, self-absorbed with her problems and goes on a pity party so that when she comes home to uh, Bethlehem, she tells everybody, don't call me Naomi anymore, but call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has made my life bitter. And so she's blaming God for all the troubles and all the difficulties in her life. And she's so focused on the problems right now that she can't see the bigger picture and she's not trusting God. And yet at that very instant that she's blaming God and crying and and on a pity party about her own problems, the solution is standing right next to her in the person of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And Ruth is going to be the agent through whom God is going to transform her suffering into blessing. So we see in the book that there is a personal transformation as, as Naomi's emptiness becomes full. She is empty. She, re- she left the land and she returned empty in chapter 1. 
And at the end of chapter 4, she is going to be full. Her life will be full, and God is the one who is going to supply all of her needs and transforms her personal sorrows and heartaches into joy, just as he does with us. Nationally, there's a picture here of what God is doing to the nation. This is during the period of the judges when they're disobedient, they're out of fellowship, they're going through all kinds of self-induced misery because God is disciplining them through the oppression of foreign powers and the fourth divine inst- I mean a fourth uh, cycle of discipline on uh, Israel as a covenant nation toward God and God is going to transform their self-induced misery and suffering into blessing because it is going to be through Naomi's great-grandchild that the nation is going to be blessed because that will be King David and then ultimately we see how this applies to all mankind that God is the one who transforms our suffering into blessing because all suffering ultimately is due to the fall of Adam, and God is going to be the one to provide the ultimate solution through the greater son of David, who is Jesus Christ. So this is, in a way, a Christmas message. This is a pre-Christmas message, because God is going to provide a child in chapter 4, through whom God is going to ultimately bless all nations. And he is in the direct messianic line. And that introduces us to another concept that is foundational to understanding this book, and that is the concept expressed in the Hebrew word chesed. The Hebrew word chesed is one that has generated a tremendous amount of debate over its meaning in scholarly literature, but it is one that is crucial to understand in the spiritual life. Chesed has to do with kindness. Sometimes it's translated simply love or loyal love, loyal love or faithful, steadfast love. But it is a love that is always related to character and a love that is always related to integrity and a love that is never related in the Scriptures to emotion. And so we see this word used numerous times, and usually it's translated kindness in Ruth, but it's used different times to emphasize the character of both Ruth and Boaz, as well as the character of God. So what we see in this in the book of Ruth is it's almost like a play, and God's the stage manager. Very rarely do you see God brought out in, onto the stage. In fact, he's, he's only there once, and that's in this chapter. Usually he is behind the scenes, and the writer portrays God as the one who is working all things together for good uh, behind the scenes. So the emphasis is on, on there, uh, the development of spiritual maturity in both Ruth and Boaz. Now I want to put up our chart that we look at so frequently related to uh, what Bryce so humorously referred to the other night as our issue handling, uh, those of you who weren't at the party really missed it, our issue handling devices, stress busters. Now in the Old Testament they only had eight of the ten. They didn't have the filling of the Holy Spirit, walking by the Holy Spirit, and they didn't have occupation with Christ, obviously, but they did have the other eight 
uh, spiritual skills or problem-solving devices that we have covered so much. And I keep emphasizing the fact that you must understand these as, diff- as skills that must be mastered along the road to spiritual maturity. And we see evidence of that in both Ruth and Boaz. For example, and we even see an example of confession in Naomi as we see her shift from being bitter and focused on her own loss in chapter 1 and by the end of chapter 2 she begins to realize that God is going to supply her need and so there is a uh, probably a confession of sin although the text never says that that is what underlies that transformation they, uh, Ruth and Boaz both demonstrate that they understand the faith rest drill. They understand the promises and provisions of God as expressed in the Mosaic Law so that they are trusting God for provision. Uh, Ruth is trusting God because she is going to go out look into the fields looking for someone who's applying doctrine, that is the doctrine of the Mosaic Law, to provide for the um, uh, sustenance of the impoverished, for the widows and orphans in the land, by not harvesting every ounce of grain in the field. They're going to leave the corners uncut according to the Mosaic Law. So she goes out trusting that God's going to provide someone, and Boaz is also trusting God. He's trusting God to provide for his own resources, and he's not out there trying to squeeze every uh, economic value he can out of every grain of barley. So he is going to apply the word and trust God to take care of his needs while he is taking care of, uh, while he's harvesting, he's going to leave the corners of the field unharvested. And so he's trusting God that he doesn't need every single bit of grain that he can squeeze out of the field. They both demonstrate grace orientation. uh, Ruth, in her kindness towards Naomi, she is submissive to Naomi. She shows respect for Naomi. That indicates humility, which is an aspect of grace orientation. Furthermore, Ruth is willing to put the past behind her. She, whatever her life was like when they were in Moab, she had certain of the details of life. She had a, she had a home. She had certain possessions. She, she had friends. She had family. She had uh, relationships with folks. She had a history there. That was her home. And she is willing to put all of that behind her. That indicates that she has at least the beginnings of the mastery of the details of life. She is putting her relationship with God as number one priority over the details of life. And Boaz, too, demonstrates grace orientation in the way he provides for Ruth and Naomi. When, she, when Ruth comes into the field, he gives her extra. He is always giving her more grain than she has actually worked for and earned. He makes it easier for her, and that demonstrates his generosity and generosity with people generosity with our finances, generosity with who and what we are, and whatever God has given us is is part of grace orientation. They demonstrate doctrinal orientation because of the way they are applying the Old Testament scriptures in relationship to the gleaning laws and leveret marriage. It shows that they have made the thinking that is reflected in the Mosaic Law part of their thinking. And that just doesn't happen by showing up at Bible class once a week or every now and then. It always amazes me how in some parts of the country, and one thing that has always impressed me more about this congregation than other congregations, is that for the most part, most of you are uh, pretty faithful. You come on a consistent basis. I think the consistent uh, attendance rate here is pretty high compared to a lot of places I've been. 
one of the problems you have down the south with the Bible Belt is you have cultural Christianity. And uh, you can, I've always been able to spot the people who, here who come out of the south because they tend to show up once a week, which is sort of a southern uh, thing. You know, if you're in certain denominations, you always show up on Sunday morning, but you don't uh, show up the rest of the time because it's still a, that, that cultural holdover. And uh, you don't get anywhere showing up once a week in the Christian life. Not only that, but if you show up every other week or every you know, two or three times a month, you, you, there's no continuity. And the way I teach and the way we believe in teaching the Word here is based on the concept that there's some continuity in people's lives. You're here week after week after week hearing the same material. And if you show up one week and it's Ruth 1 and you show up three or four weeks later and we're out of Ruth and into 1 Corinthians or something, then how, do you, uh, how can you put anything together? How can you really advance and grow in the spiritual life because you're, you're, you're just getting a, the bits and pieces of uh, doctrinal teaching? You're not really understanding the entire panorama of doctrine. But they do. Ruth and Boaz both have doctrinal orientation. They know the Old Testament law. And they are applying it in the best of their ability. Furthermore, they are demonstrating some advanced spiritual skills in terms of personal love for God and impersonal love for all mankind. They are reflecting the chesed of God. And God is the priority in their lives. And they are also demonstrating unconditional and impersonal love for one another. Uh, Ruth is demonstrating her love for Naomi. And Boaz is demonstrating a non-romantic but an impersonal and unconditional love for Ruth, especially at the beginning when he doesn't even know her. She's just somebody who's come out uh, to the field. She's impoverished, and he is, shows her uh, an extra measure of kindness. It's not uh, for a while before he comes to know her or at least to understand some things about her character by watching how she operates in the, in the, uh, in the field. So um, that just gives you an idea of how even in the Old Testament these spiritual skills are demonstrated in their lives. And then they both seem to have a measure of happiness and stability. They are not, Ruth especially, doesn't seem to be shaken at all by her negative circumstances. She has tranquility in her soul. She is calm, whereas in, by contrast, Naomi is just um, bouncing off the walls and reacting in mental attitude sense. So here's how we see these, these spiritual skills displayed in the character of these, uh, in the character of these individuals in Ruth. Another thing that it, doctrine that is, was emphasized in Ruth is that of redemption, the person of the goel, and that is from the the noun goel refers to the kinsman redeemer. We have two important words here, the goel, G-O-E-L, and, and that is based on the verb ga'al, G-A-A-L, which means to redeem, purchase, and also has as a major connotation that of protection. And the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, was to protect the family. That's part of his function, to protect and preserve the inheritance of the family. And the function of the Goel indicates that he is one who is related to uh, 
those who are going through the suffering. And in the same way, Jesus, this is a picture of Jesus Christ in hypostatic union, that he had to be full humanity in order to go to the cross and purchase our freedom through his substitutionary death on the cross. And then a, another thing that we saw last time, and I want to review it again, and it also sets us up to, under, to remind us of what's going on in the fourth chapter, and that is the way they solve problems with wisdom. See, so often in life we're faced with a number of questions about decision-making. What should I do here? What should I do there? Should I take this job? Should I leave this job? Should I move to this part of the country or that part of the country? Should uh, we have another kid or not? Uh, you know, all those kinds of down-to-earth questions. And you go to the Bible, and the Bible doesn't give you direct answers for those kinds of questions. You know, should I buy a business? Should I sell a business? Whatever Whatever it is, what should I invest in in my stock portfolio for retirement plans? All those kinds of questions we uh, don't have direct answers in the Scriptures for. But what the Scriptures do provide is a framework that as long as we follow those principles, we're operating, we know that we're operating within the general uh, sovereign or general prescriptive will of God. And we used in this instance three particular passages and built a triangle. And they were making their decisions within that triangle. God was not saying exactly how to solve the problem because uh, their situation didn't fit the Leverett marriage laws because Boaz was not a brother to either Malon or uh, Elimelech, uh, and he was not directly related to them. But he, I mean, he was a distant cousin, not a, uh, a close family uh, or, or a brother as necessitated by the passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So one side of this equation is established by the principles in Leviticus 19, 9, and 10, which has to do with the reaping law. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And that was to, in order that what's left over would be there for the needy and the stranger to come out and work and harvest that. So that's one side of the equation, and they're both applying that doctrine. Uh, Ruth is relying upon this, and she doesn't know where she'll find a field where she can glean, but she's relying upon this promise that there will be a field to glean. And Boaz is applying it in his uh, agricultural practices. Then secondly, there's the principle in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, which deals with levered marriage. And there we learn that this related to brothers, that when one brother died without a son, then the wife of the deceased should not marry outside the family to a strange man, but he should, but should uh, be taken by the husband's brother. And then uh, when she gave birth to a son, that son would be raised up to the name of the dead brother. And that if there was, we saw in verse 7, that if my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel and he is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me, then what they were supposed to do is uh, he would admit it. And then we saw in verse, verse 9 of Deuteronomy 25, that the brother's wife would come to him in the sight of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face, and declare, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. 
But the problem here is we don't have a direct brother. So, but this establishes the ceremony that, of uh, removing the sandal that is at the center of Ruth chapter 4. And then the third boundary. See, the, this third boundary has to do with protection of the property rights. And so you have three boundaries set up here. And within that framework, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz are going to work out a creative solution. Uh, and that helps solve the problem. The Word of God does not specifically address the exact circumstances of their situation. So they, they are going to apply creativity within the boundaries set by God's Word. And that's how we problem solve. And that is a great example of how we can find out the will of God in particular problems in our lives. You know, every now and then... Somebody calls me and says, well, I just need to know what God wants me to do. And unfortunately, I don't have a crystal ball or the Urim and Thummim, and so I can't figure out what the answer is any better than you can, and my, my solution may not be the right solution, and this, this is a test in your life for you to decide how to solve the problem and how to make a choice based on the doctrine in your soul and not the doctrine in my soul. So uh, I can give you some pointers sometimes, and I can uh, help you with the kinds of things you need to consider or think about in a situation, but I can't figure out the answer and uh, can't substitute my volition for your volition. Leviticus 25, uh, 10 and 11 relates to the property law that this property that is in the family that's been given by God is to stay in the family. But every now and then when the family gets into difficult situations and uh, they need the money, they can uh, sell the property. And really they they, uh, sell it in relationship to its value over the next uh, number of years, depending on when the year of Jubilee is. If the year of Jubilee is in three years, then the price is in relationship to what it's going to produce in the next three or four years. If the year of Jubilee is not for another 40, 45 years, then the value of the land is related to what it will produce in the next 40 to 45 years. But on the 50th year, the Jubilee year, then the land always returns back to its original owner and stays within the family. So that's the framework for what happens when we get into, when we get into chapter 4. Now, the other thing that we are going to see here relates to uh, the doctrine of marriage. Because here we have two peoples from two different cultures. Not only are they culturally different, one's a Moabitess, the other is a Jew, but there's a difference in age. Ruth is probably in her late 20s. She's not been married more than 10 years. From that first four verses, they were only in, the family was only in Moab for 10 years maximum. So she could have been married anywhere from, from five or six years up to 10 years, which means she, at that time, they usually married when they were about 14, 15, 16, somewhere around there. So she's probably in her middle uh, 20s at the, la- at the earliest, whereas Boaz seems to be much older, probably uh, 20 years older. So there is an age difference. So they're going to get together and uh, th- face life together. And one of the most common problems that often happens in marriage is that when two people get to mar- marry, they often either make the mistake of not marrying another believer 
are not marrying someone who is equally positive to doctrine as they are. And that is a real prescription for misery in marriage. I've often seen that happen. In fact, my first church, I was just amazed at how many people in the congregation, it was an older congregation, mostly their 50s, 60s, and 70s, how many of their children were married to either unbelievers or to people who couldn't, could care less about doctrine or weren't interested at all in grace and uh, never came to church, never got involved in church, and the principle just was never taught that uh, are emphasized with their children that you don't ever get involved in any situation that threatens uh, a potential emotional involvement with an unbeliever. You never know how things are going to go. You never know how your emotions are going to take you and where they're going to take you. You go out on a, on a date with an unbeliever, you don't know what's going to happen. The best thing to do is to avoid that kind of situation. Just establish those uh, parameters from the very beginning that you're not going to put yourself in a position that can eventually lead to, to trouble. But even in over the years, as I've done certain amount of marital counseling with, with believers who, are, uh, who seem to be at the same level of positive volition and really want to do what, what is right in terms of applying Scripture, usually what I discover is the reason that, that the marriage goes on the rocks is because one or the other or both just refuses to apply Scripture, just refuses to submit to Scripture in some particular area. Now, they usually come up with all kinds of wonderful justifications for why it's really not my fault, but it's the other person's fault. And the problem is that uh, usually there's a breakdown where the husband fails to be applying or understanding what it means to be the spiritual leader in the home and loving his wife as Christ loved the church, or the wife in some area refuses to submit to the leadership and authority of the husband. One of the things I used to do when I did uh, premarital counseling was that I would uh, give assignments to the couple, and they would have to write down not only what they thought it meant. For example, the wife would have to write down what she thought it meant for the husband to love the wife as Christ loved the church. She'd have to write down. I'd make her write down 15 or 20 examples. And the guy would have to write down 15 or 20 examples of what he thought it meant to, to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And that would develop some wonderful conversation for it was good for at least two or three hours when they started comparing notes and and when the the uh, the husband had to write down 15 or 20 examples of what it meant for the uh, wife to be submissive to the husband and then she wrote down what she thought that meant that 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 was good for another two or three hours and then the the really fun thing that that you never see happen anymore is I would have them write out a detailed budget and I would always talk about all the things that go into a budget and how detailed the budget had to be. And you would get back a piece of paper that had four line items on it. <laughs> no wonder most couples are in financial trouble is they do not understand how to budget. And they don't, uh, they don't sit down together and ever work it through. And uh, just down the road, sooner or later, those things come back and create problems in a marriage. But ultimately, the problems aren't financial. Most marriages don't break up because um, she's a brunette instead of a blonde, or uh, he's uh, not ma really. It's not. They may say it's because they're not making enough money, or they get into debt. That's not the issue. The issue always boils down to some level of a moral, spiritual problem, and that one person or both are refusing to apply the scriptures consistently 
in their marriage and refuse to submit to the authority of God's Word. And one of the difficult situations that anyone can get into is when you have people coming out of different cultures getting married. But if both people, no matter what the differences might be, if both people are submitted to the Scriptures and the authority of God's Word, then there is no problem and no difficulty that they can't overcome as long as they are uh, using the problem-solving devices and going forward. And remember, this is from a situation where Boaz and Ruth have not been dating for a while. They don't look at each other with this uh, American or Western European concept of romantic love that really developed in the Middle Ages. They don't know each other very well at this point at all. What they do know is a little bit about one another's integrity, and based on that character, they recognize there's a responsibility to preserve the name and the, and the property rights uh, that belong to the family of Elimelech and Malak. And so emotion is not a factor. Uh, romantic love is not a factor. The factor is responsibility and integrity. And because of that, that is the foundation. They're going to have a successful marriage that is uh, made famous and recorded in Scripture for all time. Now let's open our Bibles to Ruth chapter 4 and look at the first two verses. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. Now remember at the end of chapter 3, what had happened was that, that we had that unusual circumstance where Boaz is camped out up in the mountains at the threshing floor because that's where it was up on a hill and that's where uh, the winds were and they were threshing. And, and Ruth had gone out there to propose uh, marriage to Boaz. And she did it in their, according to their cultural standards. And she went out there and laid down at his feet and moved the covers a little bit. And he woke up and realized she was there and asked her why she was there. And she told him she wanted him to spread his, his uh, blanket over her, which was a, an idiom in their culture, for protecting her, and basically what she was doing was asking him to, to uh, fulfill his responsibilities as a goel and to marry her. He understood that, but he said, there is one closer in relationship to you than I am. And that responsibility first goes to him, and so he took off, as soon as the sun started to come, off, come up, he took off for town in order to solve the legal problems uh, with this other individual who had a somewhat closer relation to Elimelech. Now, remember, in a levered marriage, the responsibility goes to the brother of the deceased brother. But there is no brother of the deceased brother. And then it would go to the uncle, the brother of the father, so Elimelech's uh, brother or uh, and apparently in this situation, Elimelech didn't have a brother either, one that was still alive. So then it would go to a cousin, and apparently Boaz is a distant cousin of either Elimelech's or Malin's. Probably the, the sense that he's older would indicate that he's probably a distant cousin of Elimelech, but there is one that's closer. So there was this pecking order that they had to go through, this hierarchy of, of relatives, and he's probably a fifth or sixth cousin, once or twice removed. If you can figure out how you define all of those things, then you can explain it to me later. But now there seems to be one who's closer, so he has to figure out who this is. So that's who the close relative is in verse 1. So he, uh, 
as this close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by, he said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Verse 2, he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. And I want you to notice what's going on in the text. First of all, behind the scenes, God is operating. We're told that, that uh, Boaz went up to the gate. And there's two things going on in that particular idiom. First of all, he had to go up to, to uh, Bethlehem. Towns were usually built on a high point. And so in Israel, going up to some place is always in terms of elevation. When we say go up to some place or go down to some place, you'd go up to New Hampshire, which is north. You would go down to uh, Washington, D.C., which is south. We use up and down in relationship to directions, north and south. In Israel, up and down is literal. If you are uh, going to a city, usually you're going up to the city because it's in a higher elevation than the land around it. You, one always goes up to Jerusalem because it's on a high point. And when you leave Jerusalem, you always go down to wherever it is you're headed because it is at a lower elevation than Jerusalem. So if you're going from Jerusalem to Jericho in the north, you're going to go down to Jericho. So we have to think in terms of the biblical idiom. Furthermore, when the, there was an idiom in Hebrew that when you went up to the gate, uh, you were going to court because the gate was where the city fathers met. City gates in uh, Israel at this time were, were complex structures. They had lookout towers on the outside, and inside the gateway there were a series of rooms. Let me see if I can draw a picture of what this looked like. From, we have a few examples. For example, from uh, a 10th century gate at Gezer, looks something like this. See, here's the wall, and the wall was fairly thick. So when you walked in the gate, you had your entryway here. So here's your, your if they had a, a swinging gate here. But inside, they would have a series of rooms on each side. And usually they would have three on each side. Now, I'm not drawing this from scale, and we're just doing real good, real well, that you can get some idea of what that looks like. And this might be 20 feet thick from one side to the other. For example, the one we've recovered at, uh, the archaeologists have discovered at Geezer, shows that the middle passageway is 13 feet wide from one side to the other, and each of the side chambers was 14 feet deep, so that was much larger than the way I've drawn it here, 14 feet deep from front to back, and then from side to side, they were uh, seven feet. So you have uh, three rooms, each roughly 14 by seven feet, and then inside of each room there were benches, plastered benches along the walls where people would sit, and this is the, basically the town courthouse. This is where uh, deals were made. This is where legal problems were resolved. This is where court was held. And so what ha the idiom going up to the gate basically meant to go to court. So as soon as dawn came, Boaz headed to town to go to court. And he goes in and he sits down on one of the benches waiting to see who will come along. He comes to the gate. He sat down there. And the text says, Behold, and 
Literally, this is, and by chance, it's another one of those little things that the writer wants us to pay attention to. The close relative the, the, of whom Boaz spoke just happened to be the first one to come along that morning. Now, what, now there we see the hand of God working behind the scenes. Uh, it could be days before he would come along, but he's the first one to come along. And Boaz is going to speak to him, and Boaz says, Turn aside, friend, and sit down here. Now, that's not really a good translation. He does say, Turn aside, but the Hebrew expression here, translated friend, is, a, uh, is an interesting word play. It is, in, literally in Hebrew, it is the phrase poloni almoni. And it really doesn't mean my friend as it's rendered here. Uh, it's rendered my friend in the NIV. It's rendered friend here in the New American Standard. And uh, the rhyming of these words, like Poloni Almoni, is a word play called farrago, F-A-R-R-A-G-O, where you take two words that may perhaps just be meaningless words, but they have a certain rhyming uh, sound to them, and so they're combined to produce an idiomatic phrase. For example, in English, we talk about a hodgepodge collection or something is rather helter-skelter or somebody's afraid they have the heebie-jeebies or when we uh, when the magician waves his magic wand he says hocus-pocus see that's that's the, the the two words rhyme somewhat and so poloni almoni has a specific idiomatic uh, significance and what this refers to is the fact that he uh, it doesn't call him by a specific name and you might translate it better in English, just so-and-so. It's not a, uh, the, the writer of the text doesn't record his name for us. And that's because the man is not going to step to the plate for his responsibility. See, he has an opportunity to go down in history, in the history of the Messianic line, and be, have a significant role in history because of this opportunity. But because he doesn't avail himself of the opportunity, he has a missed opportunity, and he loses this opportunity, and so the Holy Spirit says now he's irrelevant to history. And we're not, he's so irrelevant that we're not even going to recall his name. We're just going to leave him anonymous and call him Mr. So-and-so. And so there's just this very subtle, uh, it's almost an insult to this guy that because he failed to fulfill his family responsibilities, put his own uh, problems in life, his own desires first, then he is not significant to the plan of God, so we're just going to leave him out and ignore him. So he comes along, and, and Boaz says, Turn aside, so, Mr. So-and-so, and sit down here. And the man turned aside and sat down. And then Boaz got up, and he took, went through the town and watched men coming by, and he chose ten men, who, all of whom were elders of the city. That means they were full citizens living in Bethlehem. They were older men, and they were identified as the key leadership or administrators of the city. And their response to Boaz, in that they immediately um, came over and sat down, indicated something about his stature in the city, that he is well-respected, and he too is one of the pillars of Bethlehem. Then we come to verses 3 through 8. The first part, first two verses, set the, set the stage. 
we can look at this like a play. That scene one is in verses one and two, where Boaz takes the initiative and calls the court into session. And then scene two, Boaz is going to make the issue clear to the nearer relative, the nearer Goel, in verses three through eight. And these verses read something like a court transcript today. Verse 3, Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, that's Gaal, if you will purchase it, Purchase it, but if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to purchase it, and I am after you. And the man said, I will purchase it, I will redeem it. Now, what's going on here is obscured a little bit by a bad translation. In verse 3, it says that Naomi has come back from the land, has to sell the piece of land, and that's not exactly true. She can't sell it. She is prohibited by Mosaic law to sell it. It's not hers to sell. The land is in the name of her husband. It's in part of the the clan inheritance for Elimelech and for Malin. She can't sell it. And the word here that's translated sell is a Hebrew word that means, means to sell, and that is the verb makar, M A K. A-R. But it also is synonymous to the Hebrew word natan, which means to give. So it can mean to sell or it can mean to give. And it's used that way, and we saw it used that way in the book of Judges, where we were told that God sold the Israelites into the hands of their oppressors. There was no financial exchange. He didn't get a bill of sale. There was no purchase And that was an idiom for giving. God gave them or placed them in the hand of the oppressors. So this, the use of the word uh, makar here doesn't mean that she's selling it. She wants to place the piece of land into the hands of the goel. And she is going to gain something for that uh, because the goel will, will protect the land, keep it in the family, and use it for a certain number of years until the year of Jubilee comes along. So it is merely a process of applying the, the Mosaic law in terms of keep, keeping the land in the family. So he gets the first right of refusal, and he decides that he wants to purchase it. And he says, I will redeem it at the end of verse 4, and I'm sure that at that point... Boaz's heart skipped a beat because now he's going. the man's going to redeem it and he's been looking forward to uh, marrying Ruth and has made that promise and now uh, that doesn't look like it's going to, going to take place. But then in verse 5, he's going to explain that there are a few strings attached to the deal, particularly Ruth. Verse 5, Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess. Now, that again is a bad translation because it almost makes it sound like slavery that he has to also purchase Ruth the Moabitess. And once again, as I pointed out, these terms are not uh, selling here and kana here for acquire. 
do not necessarily indicate that money is changing hands, but that Ruth goes with the land. Because if you're going to function as a goel, your responsibilities are not only to protect the land and make sure it stays in the family, but you have to also take the, the leverage responsibility to marry the childless widow and raise up a child to the name of Malon and Elimelech and keep the family line going. So there's a big string attached to the deal. And the close relative says simply, I can't redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. And apparently he had uh, some deal going on, the, uh, on, and maybe he was already married or in love with someone or whatever it was. There was something in his own life that he thought was more important than fulfilling the family responsibility. The Holy Spirit doesn't tell us and doesn't make a major issue out of it. And there's no real shame involved here. Uh, Notice that no one spits in his face, according to the Deuteronomy law, and that's because it's not a direct application of the Leveret law. He is not the brother. He's just a distant relative. So he has this responsibility, but it's not as serious a responsibility. It's not specifically spelled out as it is in the Mosaic law. So the close relative has the right of first refusal, and he does. And then the author of the book of Ruth Tells, get, inserts a little parenthetical clause in verse 7. And this clause tells us that by the time this was written, which was after David became king because of what happens at the end of the chapter, that this, they no longer practice this custom. So just another indication of how certain laws in the Mosaic Law died out that Israel was not following all of the laws in the Mosaic Law. Verse 7 states, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. And the close relative just says, Boaz, you buy it for, for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Now what was the significance of this? Remember in Israel they, they, they wore sandals. It's a desert country, and they would, he would loosen the strap on his sandal and take it off. But sandals were used as a symbolic of something. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 36, when Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, saw his land, that um, it was land, uh, God says, that uh, he shall see it, and to him and to his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot. And they would go out and they would walk around the land. When you took a piece of property and it was given to you, they would walk that land. They would walk the entire uh, boundary of that land. And that would indicate that they were taking uh, possession of it and they were claiming it for their own. And this is the background to... So apparently the, the, using a sandal or shoe then became a symbol of signing a document or taking title or claim to a piece of land. And Matthew... Uh, Jesus told his disciples to go to each village in Israel two by two, and they were to proclaim the gospel, and if it was rejected, they were to come out and take their shoe off their foot and shake the dust from it. And that was a sign of saying that God was making no claim, no title to that land because they were in apostasy and negative volition. God was revoking any claim to that city. So the, idea, the symbolism of the shoe is very important. And so the man takes his shoe and he removes the sandal and gives it to, to Boaz as a sign that Boaz can now 
take title of the land and also marry Ruth. Then in verses 9 and 10, we come to the third scene where Boaz explains the importance of his actions to the court. Verse 9, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought the hand of Naomi bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. So he hasn't purchased it, but he is taking it in under his protection as the Goel. All the land, all the property of Elimelech's, and he is going to protect it, including Ruth the Moabitess in verse 10. Moreover, I have acquired or taken responsibility for Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. Now, the interesting thing is when the child is born, it's still going to be Boaz's name in the genealogy and not Malon's. Boaz receives the blessing of the court at this point. Verse 11, All the people who are in the court and the elders said, We're witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. This is a prayer. And I want you to notice this prayer and a challenge to us in our prayer life. He says, um, the elders say, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. They are reaching back into Genesis, around Genesis 38, 39, in order to pull from the, from the history of Israel what God had done in blessing Israel at the, in the formative stage through Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah were the two daughters of uh, Laban, um, the Aramean. And if you remember the story, Jacob went to, uh, had left the land of Canaan and gone to seek a wife from, uh, from his relatives in, uh, around where uh, Laban was living. And he fell in love with Rachel, and Laban said, Well, you can marry Rachel but you have to work for me for seven years. So he did that, and then they, got, they had the wedding ceremony, and Jacob put a, had put a veil over uh, his daughter, so that, uh, which was the custom at the time. And after the wedding was over with and the marriage consummated, uh, Jacob discovered that he had married the older, less attractive sister and not the uh, younger, more beautiful sister whom he had intended to marry. And so he felt cheated, but he was stuck with that wife, so he had to work another seven years in order to get uh, Rachel. So that must be, he must have really uh, uh, been in love with her because he was willing to wait and work for 14 years in order to marry Rachel. Now, Leah was the mother of Judah. Judah is the tribal area where Bethlehem is located. And so. Leah was. We understand that the reason they listed Leah here is because Leah is the the grandmother, as it were, of the inhabitants of Bethlehem. But why Rachel? Rachel, because to, even today, one of the most honored sites in Israel is the tomb of Rachel, which is located right outside of Bethlehem. And so Rachel and Leah were seen as the mothers of Israel, and just as they had made Israel prosperous with so many. Uh, sons, so they were praying that uh, in like manner, uh, Ruth would also be a mother who would make Israel and specifically Bethlehem prosperous. And of course, this prayer is answered in the person of her great grandson, who would be King David, and eventually 
Jesus Christ, who is a descendant of David on both sides. Because of the curse of Keniah, Jeconiah, he is not a physical descendant through uh, Joseph, but also because of the necessity of the virgin birth so that no imputed sin, no uh, sin nature would be inherited by the Lord. He was born of a virgin, but he is a descendant of David through legally through his father Joseph and biologically through his mother Mary. So in verse 11 we read of the blessing and the prayer. And then in verse 12, Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And that, again, was an, exa- uh, was an example of another levered marriage. And that's why that is referred to. And so the prayer is that may they be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar, Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. And then in verses 13 through uh, 17, we have the brief story of her uh, pregnancy and birth of a son. Verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And then the women came to Naomi. Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a goel today. Notice, they don't go to Ruth. Ruth is not in the picture anymore. It is now Naomi, just as the book started with the emphasis on Naomi. It ends with Naomi. Naomi begins with the book begins with Naomi losing. She's empty, and now she is made full. It is God's restoration of blessing to her in the midst of suffering, transforming her her suffering into blessing. The women come and say, "Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a goel today, and may His name become famous in Israel." And notice here that it's a little vague whether the, his name refers to the Lord or to Obed, the, the uh, son, but it probably refers to the son, the, the name of the child, that his name would become famous because of his, uh, how he would preserve the family. Verse 15, May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So this is the blessing that the son would take care of Naomi in her old age and he would be the one to protect the family and provide blessing for the family. So Naomi takes the child, laid him in her lap, which was a, uh, cut the custom of the day to indicate uh, her, not only her acceptance, but that she is basically going to function as a surrogate mother and a nanny for this child. So now God is blessing her and they named the child Obed from the Hebrew avad, which means to work or to serve. And the name means servant, but usually it's in conjunction with some sort of divine suffix like Obadiah, may, may uh, God be served, or, or Abadiel, which is servant of God. And here it's a shortened form, Obed, and which indicates that he is perhaps going to be the servant of Naomi in fulfilling the responsibilities of a goel. And then there is a final listing of a, of a genealogy, and this is to connect, connect the dots, so to speak, between Jacob and his offspring through Perez down to David. And this indicates, once again, all of these genealogies indicate the line of the Messiah. So here we're told the generations of Perez 
To Perez was born Hezron, and Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Amenadab, and to Amenadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. They are dis- all of these genealogies give us a legal basis for claiming that Jesus Christ is a complete fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. Old Testament indicated that he would be a descendant of Abraham, that he would be of the tribe of Judah. And all of these are fulfilled. And so this is just another linkage in establishing the legal claim that Jesus Christ had. And just as this child was born to transform the uh, suffering of uh, Naomi and Ruth into blessings, so Jesus Christ would be born as a descendant of this child, and he would transform our suffering into blessing. Isaiah 7:14 prophesies, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then in Isaiah 9, 6, we're told, For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, and Prince of Peace. And so as we end our study of Ruth, we end on a high note with a foreshadowing of the ultimate redemption of mankind through the goel of all mankind, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, be reminded of your grace and how you have worked throughout history in order to bring about our salvation, that it is only through Jesus Christ that our suffering is transformed into blessing, and that we have eternal life by putting our faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says there is uh, no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make it both sure and certain by accepting Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. All you need to do right where you sit is simply believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried, rose again on the third day. Father, we pray that those of us who are already believers would be reminded of how Boaz and Ruth exemplified spiritual maturity that we might uh, be inspired by the challenge of their lives and the example of their lives to push on to spiritual maturity to demonstrate chesed, grace orientation, personal love for you and impersonal love for all mankind in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.